From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in the realm of education. Today, we look at restorative practices and emerging non-punitive approach to resolving conflict and building community in schools. Some schools and school districts are adopting that approach with the main goal being to improve relationships among students and between students and teachers with the hope of improving students' behavior and therefore reducing suspension rates, keeping kids in school. The question for many has been whether restorative practices are effective. Today, we welcome Catherine Augustine, director of the RAND Corporation's Pittsburgh office and leader of one of the first ever rigorous evaluations of restorative practices in a city school district. Augustine joined CPRI senior researcher Ryan Fink to discuss her findings, which included a notable impact on student suspension. I think that this gives us some really interesting information about what can happen after two years. The district did a lot that I think other districts might want to consider. That's right now on Research Minutes. I'm Ryan Fink, Senior Researcher with the Consortium for Policy Research and Education at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Catherine Augustine, Director of the RAND Corporation's Pittsburgh office. Catherine, it's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. So to begin, for those that might be unfamiliar, can you just talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about restorative practices? Sure. So restorative practices stem from what's called restorative justice, which has been an approach used in the criminal justice system. And some schools and school districts are adopting that approach with the main goal being to improve relationships among students and between students and teachers, Mm -hmm. and therefore to also improve climates in the classroom and in the schools with the hope of improving students' behavior and therefore reducing suspension rates, keeping kids in school. And there are are several strategies that school teachers and others use in order to improve relationships. And those are the practices in restorative practices. And some of those practices are, are proactive to build communities and classrooms and relationships. And they might involve, for example, bringing students together into a circle at the beginning of a new semester to try to get to know each other better. Or teachers might bring their own voice into a conversation in terms of telling a student how their behavior impacts their emotions, to try to build trust with that student. And the practices are also responsive to misbehavior. So if there is disturbance in a classroom, for example, the teacher might ask the students to come together in a circle to talk about what happened and how the students are feeling about that particular incident. So it's, it's really a way to give students and teachers a voice in expressing their emotions. And it's a way for students to therefore understand how their actions influence others. Um, But it also holds students accountable for their actions. So students are expected to um, listen to how others feel and apologize for any misbehavior. And depending on the gravity of the situation, sometimes a student will be asked to make reparation. So to restore or repair the relationship in some way. For example, some in some schools, a student who has disrespected a teacher might be asked to stay with that teacher during 
lunchtime or after school to help them mark papers or clean a classroom or what have you as a, an act of reparation. I do understand that, you know, there are slight variations of different models. Uh, so I don't know if it would be helpful for listeners to hear a little bit more about the particular uh, model of restorative practice uh, that was the focus of, of your study. Sure. And you're absolutely right. There are different models of restorative practices used across the country. So in this case, we were examining a model that was created by the International Institute for Restorative Practices out of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And that particular model includes what they call 11 essential elements of restorative practices. For example, one is using affective statements in which a teacher brings in their own personal expressions of how they're feeling in response to a behavior. There's also the use of what they call restorative questions so that when there is an incident um, and students are brought together to talk about it, the teacher or social worker counselor is asking questions in a non-accusatory way, in a way that doesn't elicit what they would call a shame emotion. So asking students to tell them what happened without asking them, why did you do this? Or It's less judgmental and it allows students to talk about the incident with each other, hopefully in a way that makes it clear that the adult is separating what happened from considering the student as a, a bad person. So those are just two examples of the 11 essential elements. Now, this was studied in the Pittsburgh public schools. They, the district did a lot on top of this model. So they layered other implementation supports on top of what II. RP was doing. For example, the district hired a project manager, and that person was the liaison with IIRP, organized all of the training logistics, and provided additional supports uh, that really varied by school. So some schools wanted to do a book club with parents, for example, to help parents but better understand restorative practices. Um, and the project manager did that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, your your research design for the evaluation? Sure. We studied the implementation of this program with the district support for two years. So they began implementing restorative practices in the summer of 2015, and we followed implementation through the end of the school year in 2017. And we were able to use a randomized controlled trial in doing so. So there are, we had 44 potential schools in the district that would have been eligible to implement restorative practices. So through a random assignment process, 22 were selected to implement the practices and 22 were selected to serve as a control condition. So at the end of those two years, we compared the 22 treatment to the 22 control schools on a number of outcomes. And during the two years, we also were observing implementation. So we selected four case study schools in which we, and we visited them um, every month and observed restorative practices in those schools. We also interviewed teachers and administrators in those schools, as well as people at the district level, such as that project manager. And we interviewed all of the coaches from IIRP and the project manager there. And we also, at the end of year one and year two, surveyed all of the staff in those, those 22 treatment schools. 
it's exciting because listeners may or may not know this is, to my understanding, by far the most rigorous evaluation of restorative practices that I'm that I'm aware of. Was that your understanding coming into this work? Yes. We were funded by the National Institute of Justice, and they have funded other RCTs as well on restorative practices. But I haven't, unless they came out this morning, I haven't yet seen those studies. Well, with that context, let's start talking about some of these, some of your findings in some different areas here. So you mentioned at the outset, one of the goals of adopting and implementing a restorative practices model would be to see some improvement in overall school climate. Sure. So we really lucked out in terms of our study design because the district, the Pittsburgh Public Schools, has been administering a school climate survey for many years now. So we had information from that survey prior to the implementation of restorative practices. And there are eight constructs in this survey. Great. So what did you find? So we found that teachers in the schools that were implementing restorative practices rated their overall climate as more positive. So they reported more positive working conditions and conditions conducive to teaching and learning. And then when we looked at those individual eight constructs, we found that teachers in the schools implementing restorative practices reported a more positive climate in terms of managing student conduct. That is defined as the school having clear policies and practices to address student conduct and to ensure a safe school environment. So when teachers were answering those questions, they, in the restorative practices schools, reported that they worked in a safe environment more so than did teachers in the comparison schools. Interesting. You mentioned the one uh, construct in particular about, I think it was about managing student behavior. Is that the one that you were most interested in? I mean, schools and districts have different levels of, or or maybe different goals for adopting restorative practices, but that would suggest that the main goal, at least through the evaluation perspective, is that this was mostly or intended to be a sort of disciplinary intervention. So the district applied for this grant from the National Institute of Justice, and it had two goals in doing so. One was to improve school climate, and the other was to reduce suspension rates overall, and in particular, to address the disparities in suspension rates between African-American and white students. So uh, this particular finding that teachers in the restorative practices schools were um, more likely to report that they work in a safe environment was um, is very promising. Uh, do you have any further insight into what led teachers to, to feel that way? Well, we did ask teachers if they thought that the use of restorative practices had improved their relationships with students. And the majority of teachers agreed that that was the case. So that's that's one hypothesis, that teachers feel like they have a better relationship with students, and perhaps that's leading them to conclude that the overall environment is a safer one. Um, I found your set of findings uh, related to the implementation challenges interesting, especially when considering our own work and partnering with a school district that's considering expanding the use of restorative practices. Can you talk a little bit about those those findings around implementation? So not surprisingly, the biggest barrier that teachers reported in terms of implementing and using restorative practices was time. First, it took a lot of time to learn about restorative practices. 
the practices are somewhat intuitive. And we found that teachers really do want to improve their relationships with students. This intervention resonated with them. We saw high buy-in for the use of restorative practices at the end of year one and again at the end of year two. And often when we evaluate an intervention, we see buy-in wane over time. There might be an initial excitement, but then teachers and others don't think it's working or can't do it well. And so they stop doing it or they stop believing in it. And that didn't happen in this case. But they did acknowledge that you don't become restorative overnight. It's it's not that you read one book and all of a sudden you know how to have stronger relationships with your students. And so it took time for them to go to the trainings, to work with a coach, to read the materials, to meet in professional learning community settings with other teachers. And then it also took time. This particular program was is very circle heavy. You know, you've heard me describe circles. And in some schools, the principal said that all teachers needed to start each day with a circle. Um, now, not all schools were that prescriptive, but teachers who were excited about restorative practices wanted to have these circles. And so that took time as well to do a circle in a classroom. So another implementation challenge that was reported to us by teachers and that we observed is that there was a lack of of clarity on how the use of restorative practices aligned with other aspects of, of disciplining students for their behavior. So in other words, teachers we're wondering if, okay, now that we're using restorative practices, can we still suspend students? And the answer from the district and from IIRP was a clear yes. You can still and should still suspend students when a suspension is warranted. Nonetheless, teachers were still confused. There was a, a lack of clarity on whether restorative practices was um, supplanting suspensions or was simply an effort to improve behavior that would therefore then lead to fewer suspensions. We've also done some work here around PBIS. And so, and obviously, you know, the district here is also working to reduce suspensions. And what we found is, you know, any intervention that comes in that its goal is to reduce suspensions, I feel like that sort of confusion or potential misalignment, whether it's actually misaligned or not, is fairly common. People wanting to know, well, this is this is all well and good, but ultimately, do we still have this tool in our toolbox? Let's move to your causal outcomes from the RCT design. You looked at a number of different outcomes here. Can you start by talking about the impacts of restorative practices on the use of school suspensions as well as arrests? Sure. So this is not our headline, but one of the things we did not see is a reduction in suspensions due to violent behavior. So that gets back to what we were just talking about a minute ago, that the schools continue to suspend students when suspensions were warranted by the Code of Conduct. But we did see that overall there there was a decline in the treatment schools in suspensions. Now, let me say a couple of things about that. First, we also saw a decline in suspensions in the comparison schools, which we're seeing across the country that districts and schools are suspending less, which is so that wasn't surprising that we saw that here in the Pittsburgh public schools, but we saw a greater decline in suspension in the restorative practices schools. 
the second thing I want to say about that is that that was driven by a decline in suspension for in the elementary grades. So in grades two through five is where we saw the decline in suspensions. So the reduction in those elementary grades drove the overall finding, but you did not necessarily see that same pattern in the middle and high schools? That's correct. So in the middle grades, we did not see a reduction in suspensions in the schools using restorative practices. In the high schools, we only had three schools that went up to grade 12, and we did not have baseline equivalency between the treatment and comparison schools. So we look at high school students when we look at all of the students together, but we can't isolate the impact of restorative practices in those high schools, unfortunately. We did see a reduction in disparities. So we saw fewer African-American students suspended in the um, restorative practices schools, but we did not see a decline in suspension for white students. So they're still in the district. um, African-American students are suspended at greater rates still, but that disparity has shrunk. Uh, Let's move to talk a little bit about the impacts you saw that you looked at regarding student achievement. Sure. The district did not have improving student achievement as a primary goal. Their primary goals were improving student climate, reducing suspension rates, and the disparities in those rates. Um, However, a lot of researchers are starting to look at, well, what happens to student achievement if schools are suspending less? Does it go up because more students are in school for more days? Does it go down because students who might have been excluded from the classroom are staying in the classroom, which might be disruptive. And we did not see an impact on student achievement for the elementary grades. So neither of those hypotheses bore fruit. So in other words, those were the grades, grades two through five, where we saw fewer suspensions. And we did not see student achievement go up because students were in school more. Neither did we see it go down because those students were in the remaining in the classroom. So that was interesting. We did see at the middle grade level, so this was in our study grades seven and eight, that academic outcomes actually worsened in math, not in reading. And they worsened in schools in which the majority of students are African-American. And so they worsened both for African-American and for white students in those particular schools. And we we don't know why this is. It could be that in, you know, in an elementary school, in many cases, the same teacher has the kids all day. So if they're going to do a circle a day, maybe they're not doing it in place of math instruction. Whereas in a, a middle school, math teachers might only have the kids for 45 minutes a day. And if if they choose to do a circle, and if that circle takes 20 minutes, perhaps they're not doing as much math instruction. And therefore, that that could be why academic outcomes actually worsened for those grades. You know, we didn't do enough observations just in math classrooms in those grade levels to um, have a sense of whether or not that's actually the case. We We do know that suspensions did not go down in grades seven and eight. So it's not that students were staying in the classroom and therefore disrupting those classrooms. That's not why Mm -hmm. academic outcomes worsened. That set of findings around the middle school certainly begs for more investigation, it sounds like. 
Maybe it's about figuring out or understanding a, a better model that fits sort of the middle school schedules and routines for restorative practice, that it's not interrupting so much instructional time. Yep, that, that could be promising, definitely. And it is interesting to think about those years. I have a daughter who is now a freshman in high school in a Pittsburgh public school. And when she was in middle school, her middle school was doing um, restorative practice circles, and she called them hippie circles. She thought they were so strange. She didn't like them at all. Now she's a freshman in high school, and they're doing circles in her school, and she loves them. And she sees it as a way to get to know the other students, and she respects the teachers who are running the circles. Are there any other limitations that readers or listeners here should keep in mind when thinking about the findings from your study? Well, I think the biggest one is that, remember that we only looked at outcomes after two years of implementation. And I don't know what the ideal length of time is for teachers and others to learn about restorative practices and move towards proficiency in using them. We asked the coaches who were coming into the schools from IIRP that question at the beginning of this study, and most of them said it takes around four years to really feel comfortable using restorative practices and to see you know, the, the fruits of that labor. This gives us some really interesting information about what can happen after two years, but I think it would also be foolish to think that this is a definitive study on restorative practices, given that it, it was only looking at outcomes after two years. Yeah, I think that's a that's an important important limitation to keep in mind, and I really like the way that you articulate it. I always like to ask if if you or anyone on your team were surprised by anything that you found. Well, we were surprised to see that the positive impacts were mainly in the elementary grades. Teachers of elementary school students reported that their students were open to the practices, to having circles, to building relationships in that way. But when the teachers tried to have fairly complex conversations about how somebody's actions might have impacted the other students, they reported that that the students found it hard to follow those conversations or hard to participate in them. Some of the constructs were over their heads, you know, for the youngest kids. So early on, we thought, well, geez, maybe this isn't going to work all that well for elementary schools. And on the flip side, we saw some high school students and middle school students doing some really cool things. Some of them started their own clubs called Peace Circle Clubs or Restorative Practice Clubs and would offer up to teachers uh, that they would come into classrooms to mediate any kind of disturbance. And that did happen. Teachers did take these students up on that offer. And it was fascinating to watch. And we were not able to, for various reasons, actually interview or survey students, which is another limitation of this study. Um, But we certainly saw things happening in the higher grades that we thought were really interesting and promising and represented um, a clear understanding of the practices and how they could work and ownership of them by the students. So when we got to the end of the study and saw more positive outcomes in elementary schools and not positive outcomes in middle schools, we were a little bit surprised. 
Okay. Finally, what, what are the t- big takeaways from this study? There's different audiences for this work, obviously, schools and school districts uh, considering adopting a restorative practices model, but then also for policymakers and, and future research as well. Well, I do think that these findings overall are promising for school districts. I think they're worth, I think restorative practices is is a program or intervention worth considering, and particularly for the elementary grades. If a school district is considering investigating them, they might want to start with the elementary grades. thing that the Pittsburgh Public Schools has said is that they are hoping that because this does seem to be working in the elementary grades that as the students progress through school, this will be a way of communicating with each other and being and that they'll maintain as they enter into the middle grades. I do think that policymakers should, as they're funding interventions, continue to fund restorative practices, particularly for elementary grades. But I do agree that more research is needed to figure out you know, what's happening in the middle grades, why this didn't work so well there. If, as you said, this particular program could have been adopted in various ways, you know, coming back to thinking about time and teachers reporting they didn't have enough time for restorative practices and the hypothesis that maybe that's why academic outcomes worsened in the middle grades. I know the district would like to weave restorative practices into academic instruction. So, for example, there could be more classes that are done in circles that weave in some of the restorative practices that have to do with bringing students' voice into setting expectations for a classroom. And then there are other practices that some of the coaches recommended, like standing outside the classroom door as students file in, greeting them all by name, looking each student in the eye, perhaps, you know, shaking a hand of a student or just doing that quick check-in that doesn't then take away from academic instruction time, but still builds a rapport and demonstrates respect for each of the students. So I think, as we both have been saying, there might be ways in which restorative practices could be done differently in middle schools. So I think, you know, future research could focus on that and policymakers could consider funding that kind of research. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that you wanted to have included? I guess I'll add just just two things quickly. One is, if other districts are considering implementing restorative practices, I do think the Pittsburgh model worked very well. The district did a lot that I think other districts might want to consider. They, as I said earlier, hired a project manager They ensured that the school leaders understood restorative practices and could model them, which turned out to be important in this study. They provided mandatory professional development for 16 hours. They provided books and materials to teachers. They brought in external experienced coaches to work with the schools. They expected that teachers would come together into professional learning communities at least once a month for an hour to talk about their use of restorative practices. So all of those things take time and resources. But as I've said earlier, you don't you know read one book and become restorative. The coaches describe this as a journey. So without that infrastructure, those resources, that time devoted to learning the practices, I don't think that buy-in use and confidence would have been as high. 
Well, it's a very interesting and very timely study, and I'd encourage listeners interested in this topic to go and read the full research brief at RAND.org. Catherine Augustine, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. It was a pleasure speaking with you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRE Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to this series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's c-p-r-e-hub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest future topics, you can follow us on Twitter at cprehub.